Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1 says, For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant. And it starts with the word for because he's explaining something that he just got through talking to you about in 1 Corinthians 9. But he's explaining it in chapter 10. Okay? So let's go back a little bit and see what he's explaining. Just to verse chapter 9 and verse... Uh, 24. Um, and using, you know, and some don't even know the, you know, the, the Old Testament anyway. So, um, but I'm just reading this first bit here, I can see why I've been studying well, today. That's, what, yeah, that's basically what, yeah. what I was going to talk about in chapter ten. There. <laughs> it says, "For for you know not, or for you know, for you not know you not that they that run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize." Even so, run that you may attain. And every man that striveth in the games exercises self-control in all things. In other words, a person has to control their body and make it do things that are normally painful in order to win a race. And it's sad to say, but a lot of Christians don't understand that about this race that we're running. In fact, they may not even look on it as a race. But you know, only one receives the prize, and I'll tell you who that one is, is Christ. We're seeking to manifest Jesus Christ. The Bible says, we talked about it a few minutes ago, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3 and 18 that we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and that we're transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So it is Jesus in us that we desire. We desire Him to have full possession of these vessels. And yet he's telling you that it's a race. And it's a race that you're not going to win unless you strive to have self-control. Just like anybody who runs a race, you have to strive to control yourself. In fact, the great apostle Paul went on to say, Now they do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Now that may be against some people's doctrine right there. We do it to receive a crown. We keep our body under, we keep our body under submission to the Spirit of God in order to receive a crown. Now that's what the Scriptures are saying here. He says, I, I therefore so run as not uncertainly, so fight I as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and bring it into bondage, lest by any means after thy, that I have preached to others 
I myself should be rejected or reprobated. Actually, the word is adokimos. It means reprobated, rejected, not standing the test. Here's Paul saying, disqualified. disqualified. That's good. You know? That's the truth, too. Uh, because we are running a race, some are not going to finish the race. And that's what he's going to talk about here in chapter 10, is those who didn't finish the race. But Paul says he buffeted his body. Now, he's not talking about asceticism, you know, doing things just to be mean to your body. But he's talking about self. He's talking about going against the self-life. What self desires, you must deny. You deny it in order to fulfill the will of God. And if you're going to run a race, if you're going to strive in the games, the only way you're going to win that race is denying self. It is a race in order to deny self. Okay? Uh, and Paul, like I said, the great Apostle Paul, said that even after he finished preaching to others, that he would be reprobated if he himself did not keep his body under subjection. If he didn't buffet his body. Well, I tell you, your body wants to do things, or yourself wants to do things, contrary to the will of God. And you've got the authority, contrary to a lot of teaching and preaching, we've got the authority to command this body. We've been given authority over this body by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's given us authority. He's given us power to resist this body. People say, I just can't. Well, or the devil made me do it, or whatever, you know. The point is, that's wrong. That's not the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus set us free from the power of the flesh. That he made reconciliation on the cross, which is another way of saying he took away our sinful life and he gave us his pure, holy, and spotless life. He gave it to us. The word reconciliation means an exchange. He made an exchange at the cross. And we're to confess that good news, that gospel, until we see it coming to pass in our life. We behold Jesus in the mirror until we're transformed into the same glory, same image from glory to glory. So Paul in chapter 10 is explaining just all about this race, you know, about those who don't finish the race, about those who are rejected, those who are reprobated, okay? And so he goes on to say, For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud." And all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual food and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. You know, in a type and a shadow, they did everything that we are commanded to do in the New Testament. They were baptized in the sea they were baptized in water, okay? Um, when they went down in that sea and came up on the other side, the Israelites came up and the Egyptians went down. The Egyptian represents the old man, the old life. He drowned in that sea. And the Israelite, who represents the spiritual man, the spiritual life, was delivered from the power of Egypt. He was delivered from the power of the Egyptian that had ruled over him all of his life. And not only that, they were baptized in the cloud. And you know what that is? It's, it represents the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because uh, the cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud, came down and dwelt in the temple, and it was the Spirit of God. Okay? And so, in a type and in a shadow, they had what we had. They also ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. 
They partook, spiritually speaking, of Christ. And again, I want to say that this is a parable. What happened to them was a parable. It was a type, it was a shadow, but it was a type and a shadow of the church, of what was going to happen in the church, okay? Because he goes on to say, Howbeit with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. With most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now you know, the, the Jews when they came through the Red Sea, they were going through the wilderness to get to the promised land. They had to overcome in that wilderness to get to the promised land. But here he's talking about most of them never made it to the promised land. Now, I'm sure you've seen different types and shadows of the promised land. We've talked about quite a few of them here, and I don't want to deny any one of them. Some people try to be narrow-minded and say that, no, it's this and no, it's that. But I know that the Lord has shown me that the promised land in one type is the kingdom of heaven. And in another type, it's this life that we're seeking to conquer for Jesus Christ. It's this old life. This promised land has got Canaanites living in it. They live after the lust of their flesh. But the truth is that the Israelite is supposed to dwell in this land and live in this house and take this land for God's people. Okay? That's another type of the promised land. Another type of the promised land the Lord showed me is this word right here. Because it is the land of promise. You know, God told Joshua, every place that you put the sole of your foot, I'm going to give it to you. And you know, every bit of this word that you bring under submission, you bring your body under the submission to, God's going to give it to you. That's what all these precious promises are for. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Having therefore these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You know, we really need nothing but this word. The Bible says, it. He says, since you have these promises, cleanse yourself of all defilement. Now, it's not your power, it's God's power, I agree. But his power comes when you agree with this word. Having these promises wins ourselves. And so, there are people who die in the wilderness and never make it to the promised land. And that's the point. There's a great falling away coming. The Bible talks about it. Before the Son of Perdition is revealed, you know, there's going to be a great falling away. And there's going to be a lot of people that's going to die in the wilderness. Because let's face it, we were delivered from Egypt. And we were baptized, Okay. We came out of this world. We were set free from the power of this world when we were baptized. But that doesn't mean that Egypt was delivered out of us yet, right? I mean, just like God took the Israelite out into the wilderness to deliver them from the Egyptians' ways and from the Egyptians' gods and so on and so forth, He's bringing us through this world in order to deliver us from our old natural upbringing, our old carnal thinking, our gods, so to speak, you know, our, our, the lusts of our flesh. He's bringing us through a wilderness of trial in this world where He really wants to show us that He's our Savior. He's promised to be our Savior and so many promises. And He wants us to stand on those promises and believe Him. But with most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. You know, in Jude 5, Jude said, I desire to put you in remembrance that the Lord, having saved a people out of the land of Egypt, later destroyed them that believed not. You know, there's a lot of religious thinking nowadays that all you've got to do is accept Jesus as your Savior. And you know, you might have a real limited view of that, but we need to accept Jesus as our Savior every day. 
He wants to save us every day. He wants to save us from all the circumstances in the wilderness. God promised to save his life from those circumstances in the wilderness. And yet they were believers. He said, I called my son out of Egypt. And you know that has a double meaning. It talks about Jesus and it also talks about Israel because God drew Israel out of Egypt. And he brought him out into that wilderness. And But he said he saved a people out of the land of Egypt and then destroyed those that believed not. So it is a race. It's not. Everybody thinks, a lot of people have thought, rather, that it, the race is begun and ended when you accept Jesus or some Pentecostals say when you get filled with the Holy Ghost or when you go through a certain this or that. You know, everybody likes to draw that little line down there and say, when you stepped over that line, everything's okay. But Paul likens it to a race. And a race in which you're learning to put your body under submission. Your carnal life, your carnal self under submission to the Spirit man. Now you know, Jesus has already made that possible. He's already overcome the world. And he said it's finished. And all he wants us to do is agree with him. That's how we keep our part of the covenant, is agreeing with his word. In the midst of trials, in this wilderness experience, as we're coming to the promised land. We all want to enter into the promised land. We all expect to enter into the promised land. But let me tell you, it's the overcomers that are going to do it. And God, every day, is bringing trials into our life, just as he did in the wilderness. We need to look at those trials... And say to ourselves, if this is something that God has ordained for me to overcome, to please Him, and to go to the promised land. You know, in these trials that we go through every day, we are to be putting to death self. That's the purpose of trials, is to put to death self. To buy the gold that's refined in the fire. The fiery trial that comes upon you to prove you, you know. Every day we go through trials. If we'll stop and recognize these things as trials that the Lord has given to me as an opportunity to have more of Him, then we may look on them a little differently. Too many times we moan and groan and worry about the things that are coming to us. But God is in control. He's a sovereign God. He's really in control. He was in control in the wilderness when He brought them three days' journey out there and there wasn't any water. And He was in control in the wilderness when they needed food. And He was in control in the wilderness... For all of their needs, he was in control. He supernaturally provided for them in that wilderness. And you know what? We're God's people. We tend to think about how God dealt with us when we were in Egypt. But you know, we're God's people in the wilderness. And we should expect to see those miraculous salvations and deliverances that come from God. And if we expect to see them, we will see them. If we don't expect to see them, we won't see them. But... God wasn't pleased with a lot of them. And I'll tell you why. Turn turn with me to uh, Numbers 14. Yeah, Numbers 14. This is the story that he's talking about over in 1 Corinthians 10. Okay? Let's uh, start in verse uh, 26. And I want to show you why many of God's people, after he had drawn them out of the land of Egypt, how many of them died in the wilderness in the wilderness before they came to the promised land? Why did they die in the wilderness before they came? Why they didn't overcome in the wilderness? Okay? It's real simple. It's not beyond you. It's not beyond your ability or any child of God's ability to overcome in the wilderness. Jesus said, Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In other words, he's done it for you. All you've got to do is enter into his promises through faith. Okay? And the Lord spake unto Moses, 
and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation that murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord, Surely, as you have spoken in mine ears, so will I do unto you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, that have murmured against me, surely you shall not come into the land concerning which I swear that I would make you to dwell therein. They murmured. This is the thing that made God angry. They murmured against him. What is it to murmur against, against God? Well, first of all, what, what caused them to murmur against God? Watch. The thing that happened in, in 14 and 1, in 14 and 2, it, said, it talked about them murmuring against God. What caused that? First of all, Moses had sent elders from every tribe to go and spy out the promised land. And not only that, God had promised the people of God that, that he was going to give them. He swore unto them that he was going to give them this land. And that the enemy would be nothing before them. That he would just cause them to be food for them. He was going to give them this land. There was only two people that came back and agreed with God in, in saying that. And that was Joshua and Caleb. They agreed with God. They spoke what God spoke concerning that. But you know, the other ten leaders of the other ten tribes, they all came back saying what they saw and what they heard and what they felt. Instead of agreeing with God, they walked by sight. And they saw, they spoke what they saw and what they heard and what they felt. They spoke about the giant. They, they spoke about things that they felt was physically impossible for a man to overcome. Okay? But they ignored what God said. God gave them promise. He swore to them that he was going to give them this land. But it was there. It was taken. Just go. I'll deliver it up before you, he told them. And so these elders came and gave what he called an evil report to the people. And the people's heart just melted when they heard their elders speak in this way. And so they murmured, you know, it's better for us to have died in Egypt. We should go back to Egypt, so on and so forth. They murmured. Murmuring was speaking against God. That's what it said up a little further. They spoke against the Lord. You know, even today, we've got a lot of elders in Christianity worldwide. They're doing the same exact thing. They're speaking against God. They're saying that you can't take the promised land. You can't conquer the land for Christ. They're saying, for instance, that you're always going to be in bondage to sin. But that's not what the Bible says. You know, Paul spoke words of faith when he says, No more I that live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, he believed, he reckoned it done. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, Paul said, Reckon yourself to be dead unto sin. Why? Because he said, If you've been united with Christ in the likeness of his death, you shall also be of his resurrection. We are to reckon ourselves to be dead in sin. Not that we're always going to be sinners. Not that we're not going to be able to conquer the lusts of the flesh that come up against us. Hey, God God told them, you go in there and you, you know what the names of those tribes were? If you look up their names in a concordance, you'll discover that those tribes, each one of their names represented a different lust of the flesh. In fact, their kings represented different lusts of the flesh. So what they were really conquering is what we conquered. 
this land right here, this land that's been given to us, this promised land that's been given to us to rule over, this house that we are to dwell in. The Israelite went into the promised land. He killed the Canaanite. He dwelt in his house. He, he got fields that he didn't labor for and houses that he didn't build, the Bible says. And you know what? That's the same with us. We are to take this land. The spirit man is to take this land and use it for God. In Hebrews 6, he said, For the land, it's impossible to renew someone to repentance, seeing they crucify the Lord for themselves, the Son of God afresh. He said, For the land which has drunk the rain, it comes upon it, it brings forth herbs for whom it is still well. But if it brings forth thorns and thistles, it's nigh unto a curse. And he's talking about us. He's talking about people. Flesh and blood people. We are the land. That parable over there in Numbers 13, 14, many places in the Old Testament, that is a parable about this land that we are to conquer, the lust of the flesh. God said, go. Every place you put the sole of your foot, I'm going to give it to you. That's what he told Joshua. Go, I'm going to give it to you. And you know what? They're saying today, you can't do that. Well, they prove their unbelief by saying that. They're proving their unbelief. They are not confessing what the Bible says. They are bringing an evil report. There are some say, well, sometimes God heals. Sometimes he don't. That's another evil report. I'll tell you what. If you line up with this word, God always heals. Jesus came and healed everybody that came to him. Didn't he? Sure he did. For the last 20-something years, he's always healed me. He'll, and he'll heal you. But you know what? You've got to agree with the word. You don't have to be good enough to get God's provision. You have to humble yourself to the word. You have to agree with the word. And you have to agree that you've been wrong. You know? And, um... You know, God's promises don't automatically come true. Go back to verse um, oh, 30. No, back in Numbers 14, verse 30. It says, Surely you shall not come into the land concerning which I swear that I would make you to dwell therein. You mean God made a promise that he is not going to fulfill? Yes, absolutely. Watch. Say, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones that you said should be a prey, them will I bring in. And they shall know the land which you have rejected. Who rejected it? They rejected it. Okay? But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be wanderers in the wilderness forty years, and shall bear your whoredoms until your dead bodies be consumed in the wilderness. After the number of days in which you spied out the land, even forty days, for every day a year shall you bear your iniquities, even forty years, and you shall know my alienation. Any of y'all have a, no a footnote there that the Greek says, the revoking of my promise, the breaking of my promise. You know that God's got a right to break his promise on one condition, that you break the covenant. You know how you break the covenant? You don't believe. If you don't believe, he don't have to do it. Didn't Jesus come to his own hometown and want to do the many mighty works he's done at other places? But the Bible says he could not because of their unbelief. Could not. He was bound from doing it because of their unbelief. And the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And so our part in this, in this covenant with God is purely faith. If we don't have faith, he don't have to fulfill a promise. The only way the promises are fulfilled 
You're supposed to stand on them by faith. That's why he told them, every place you put the sole of your foot in that promise land. In other words, everything you bring under obedient submission through faith, God will give it to you. And all the promises of God, the Bible says, are yes, and through him is the amen. Some people say, well, sometimes God will do this. And some No, the Bible don't say that. Yeah, sometimes God will do some things, and sometimes he'll do other things. But he'll always do his promises. The Bible says all the promises of God are yes. There's no yes and no. It's yes. The problem is, are we going to believe it? Are we going to confess it? He said, as you've spoken in my ears, so shall it be done unto you. You're going to die in this wilderness. Well, that's what they said. Go back to 14 and verse 2. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. And would that we had died in this wilderness. And that's exactly, well, that's what you said. That's what you get. You know what Jesus said? Be it unto you according to your faith. He said that over and over and over. He said, Thy faith has made thee whole. Thy faith has saved thee. Over and over, he put the responsibility for having faith on the people he ministered to. Yeah, Jesus had faith. But the Bible says if any two agree, you know, Jesus had faith, but he wanted to pray for people who also had faith. And he knew that if they had faith, they would receive. And we should do the same thing. We shouldn't pray for people that are just unbelieving. We shouldn't minister to people that are unbelieving. We should do like Jesus did, try to get an expression of faith out of that person before we do it. Because God don't want to honor unbelief. He wants to honor our faith. You know, why did why did God in the first place not save them in Egypt? First of all, He saved them, He brought them out into the wilderness where Egypt couldn't be their provision, couldn't be their Savior anymore. He brought them out into a place where only God could save them. There wasn't enough food out there to feed them. There wasn't enough water out there for them. There was no provision for them. And so, supernaturally, God brought water out of a rock, meat out of heaven, you know, uh, and He provided for them. You know what? God wants us to do that. He wants us to go out into the wilderness of our own free will and say, okay, God, you be my provider. I'm not going to run back to Egypt to be fed, you know, anymore. I'm not going to go back there to rest upon trust in the strength of the arm of the flesh anymore, because the Bible says there's a curse on that, right? But I'm out here to learn to trust in you. You know, God's going to do that. I mean, if you don't do it now, it's going to happen later. You learn to trust in God. Put your faith in God. Stretch your faith a little bit, and it'll grow. If you don't ever stretch it, if you always trust in man's ability and man's ability to save you, then you're just like them who were saying, let's go back to Egypt. We should have stayed in Egypt, you know. Well, that's what the world is all about. But God wants us to see that he's, his supernatural power will be with us. He told Joshua, look what he said. He said in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, he told Joshua how to get success in conquering the promised land. And you know what he told him? He said, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. Thou shalt meditate thereon day and night, that thou mayest observe the do according to all that is written in. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, then thou shalt have good success. In other words, you want to be successful in conquering the lusts of your flesh, you want to be successful in this race of controlling self, of buffeting your body, however Paul talked about it, yeah? 
If you want to be successful in being obedient to the Word of God, He tells you, don't let this word or this law depart out of your mouth. Don't say what you would say in a trial in the wilderness. Oh, Lord, why is this on me? I, didn't, I don't deserve this, you know. I'll just, in other words, speaking what the ten elders said when they went in and saw the giants. They saw, again, what they saw and what they felt and what they heard. That's what they spoke. Now Joshua and Caleb. You know what they repeated? They repeated what God said to them. You can have it. And they turned and told it to the people, you can have it, it's yours. Just go. These giants are bread for us. God has given them into our hands. Just go. You know what? We can go up against every lust of our flesh by faith in the Word of God and conquer it. Why? Because Jesus already crucified on that cross our old sinful nature. The old man has been put to death. And we are to reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God. Everybody's wondering now, how do I get this power from God to overcome this or that? This only comes one way. The power of God is the gospel. You know, also, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, unto deliverance, in other words, to everyone that believes it. You don't need psychiatrists. You don't need the work of man. This is a supernatural work of God. God will deliver you. He'll deliver you from sickness. He'll deliver you from... Uh, psychic problems, uh, depression, depression, anything. He'll deliver you. But you've got to have faith in what the Word says. And he tells Joshua how to do it. The way, don't let the Word depart out of your mouth. Speak the Word. Don't speak what your natural man would say. You know, uh, Mary had a dream recently um, that she was in this in this room and the place was holiness unto the Lord. You know, And uh, she knew that in this place the right thing to do was to speak what the Word said. You want to be justified when you come into trial, trouble, tribulation, chastening? Hey, if you want to be justified, let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, you say what this says. Don't say what you'd say or what anybody else would say. Just say what this says. See, what, what was the room then? The room was, let God be true and every man a liar. Hey, if, if you're not ready to do that, you're going to depart from that. Let God be true and every man a liar. So that we can be justified. For the word, same word as righteous. The word for justification is the same word for righteousness. If you want to be righteous when you come in to a wilderness trial or trouble or tribulation, if you want to be called righteous in that, then you got to make sure that you're making God true, like Joshua and Caleb did. They said God was true. They spoke what God said. And every man was a liar as far as they were concerned. They were the only ones who entered the promised land. Out of those people. You know, that's a type and a shadow. If you go back, and, and a parable, you know, if you don't understand that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where we left off, he says, verse 6, 1 Corinthians 10 and 6, he says, Now these were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as also they lusted. These things were for our examples. You know, the word examples there, the Greek word there, is a figure or a type. Or a parable, if you will, if you can understand a parable, you know. A figure or a type. They were a figure or a type of the church. In other words, what went on back there is still going on today. What The reason they stumbled in the wilderness is the same reason many stumble today. And there are still many falling away. There's a great falling away today from those that will say, let God be true and every man alive. 
even in Christendom, you know, I, I, I'm continuously coming out of Babylon, you know, as far as that's concerned. You know, being delivered of the traditions of men that were passed on to me. We've got to study this word in order to teach our mouths how to speak concerning God. Because they angered God. The Bible says they angered God by their evil report, by their murmuring, which was speaking against God. They angered God. And they were an example of us. And it says, to the intent that they should not lust after evil. And it doesn't say things in the original. Things is, is added in. The Greek didn't have any word things. But it's commonly added into the scriptures in our English language. But that they would not lust after evils as they also lusted. That we wouldn't lust after evils as they also lusted. Okay? And you know where that comes from? It comes from Numbers chapter 11. Look at that just a minute. Go back to Numbers. You flip back, back and forth a few times to really find out where Numbers is at. And a lot of people don't realize. Well, let's look in Numbers 11 about this, this uh, lusting that he was talking about that caused some to fall in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 11. And the people were as murmurers, speaking evil in the ears of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them, and devoured in the uttermost part of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses, and Moses prayed unto the Lord, and the fire obeyed him. And the name of that place was called Tabirah, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. It means fire. Okay, burning. Uh, and the mixed multitude that was among them lusted exceedingly. You know what a mixed multitude is. It's somebody that's half an Israelite and half of a... In that case, it was an Egyptian man. And to, to the extent that we're not sanctified... Uh, that's what we are. We're a mixed multitude. You know that? To the extent you walk half in the flesh and half in the spirit, that's what you are. A mixed multitude. To feed on flesh. Those things that are fleshly. Those things that the flesh would desire after. Okay? They want to feed on those things. Down in uh, verse 18, they said, You shall give us flesh to eat. But it was well with us in Egypt. Okay? And uh, verse 19 says, You shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days. But a whole month until it come out of your nostrils. It will be loathsome unto you because you have rejected the Lord. Now notice, when they rejected the manna for the flesh, they rejected the Lord. Now when you want the things that you want, not caring about what God wants, what God desires in your life, you're rejecting the Lord. It says you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why came we forth out of Egypt? They were always crying to go back to Egypt. You know, God's people are still running back to Egypt at every opportunity when they get in a lack out in the wilderness. Instead of going to the Lord and said, Lord, your word says this. And partaking of the word, they're partaking of the flesh. You know, you, what you eat, you are. You, you take that word and you chew it up and you put it inside of you, it becomes a part of you, just like natural food does. And you partake of the flesh, it also becomes a part of you. You partake of the desires of the flesh, of eating, partaking of the flesh. God's desire for them is not to partake of the flesh. Don't give in to the flesh. Don't feed the flesh. Just eat, partake of the Word of God. Take it inside of you and let it become part of you. You know, God sent them a quail. I looked up quail one time in the Strong's Concordance. And I wrote a note in my Bible where it says, it, it, Strong says, it represents the idea, the Word, Selob, which is the word for quail, it represents the idea of sluggishness as slow in flight from weight. I don't know if any of y'all ever 
hunted quail, but I used to be a big hunter. I'm not anymore. I don't care anything about it. But I used to hunt quail. I used to hunt doves. And, and uh, well, I tell you, a quail is the clungiest thing. You can they'll scare you half to death. You walk through the woods, and they'll just explode and wings flapping so fast, trying to get their fat little bodies off the ground. You know, because they're just so heavy. They can hardly fly, you know, and they're slow. They're an easy prey. They're slow to take off. What devastates a quail population is house cats. House cats will get in there and just eat them up, you know. And, uh, but you go and shoot at a dove now. A dove is a fast flying bird and it does this and does that and they fly fast. You gotta lead a dove. You gotta, if you shoot a dove with a shotgun, you gotta get out ahead of him like that and you're gonna miss him. If you shoot where he is, you're gonna miss him. A quail, you can almost shoot right at him because he's slow and slow, you know, clumsy and so on and so forth. Not that I'm big on hunting. I'm, I don't even do that anymore. If I got hungry, I guess I would. But, but you know, that's that's the way it is. That's what the flesh <laughs> represents, you know. Is, is The quail represents something that's an easy prey. They're hard to overcome the world. Isn't that what your wings represent, you know? Over, like eagles. We overcome this world when we fly above it, you know. Spiritually speaking. But a quail has trouble overcoming the world because of their own weight. You know, the Bible says in, in Hebrews 12 and 1, it says, laying aside every sin and the weight, weight in every sin, that so, so easily besets us, let us run with patience the race. In other words, if you've got a lot of weight, you're not going to be able to run the race. That's the problem with partaking of quail. As you get like them, you just won't be able to get off the ground. Why? Because of your own, the lust of your flesh. Now, the Bible says if you walk after the flesh, you must die. If you by the Spirit put the death of these in body, you'll live. But if you walk after the flesh, you must die. That's what this represents. That's what this parable is talking about. Is them walking and desiring after the flesh. You know, uh, down in verse... Uh, 33, it says, while the flesh was yet between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And the name of that place was called Kibropatah, because there they buried the people that lusted. And that word just means the graves of lust. Okay? They there buried the people that lusted. The people journeyed, so on and so forth. The point is, they didn't make it to the promised land. Why? Because they partook of the flesh instead of the manna. You know, the most important thing we can do if we want to make it to the promised land is to partake of God's Word. It's the only thing that's acceptable in the promised land. The Word made flesh and dwelt among us with Jesus. And yet He's the sower that went forth to sow the seed. And the seed, He said, was the Word. And he said, we're born again from above. Meaning what? Meaning this word that comes down out of heaven is what we're made out of. As the word made flesh, as a, a, a brother of Jesus, as a spiritual son of Jesus, we are the word made flesh. It is the word manifested in us that God is looking for. It's not the carnal man. It's the word made flesh that God is looking for. And in order for that to be a part of your being, you've got to chew on that word. You've got to consume that word. It's got to be the most important thing in your life to know what God wants and to do it. Otherwise, what are you doing? 
you just throw it in yourself. But the most important thing for you to do is to lust after your desires in this life. You're going to fall in the wilderness. You're not going to make the promised land because you're just serving self. You're not serving the Lord. You're not a servant of the Lord. We have been created to serve the Lord in this life. We've been created, each one of us, with a different purpose. And what we do by studying the Word is we find out what God's purpose is for us individually. God's got a purpose. He's got a ministry for everybody here. He's got a work for everybody here. And we need to find out what that is. We need to find out what we're here for. We are here, basically, to serve the Lord. To find out His desires and to do it. Do you know that God can give you what you want if what you want is evil? The Bible says they lusted after evil things. You know what the Bible says? God gave it to them. Well, you want flesh? Here. Here's plenty of flesh. Here's more than you can stand. God will do that. God, remember God did that with Nebuchadnezzar, didn't he? Till he learned that the Most High rules in the kingdom of heaven and upon the earth. God turned him over to a beast mind, and he went out there like a beast in the field. He just did nothing but serve the flesh, you know? You know, God can do that to people. He does it all the time. You want flesh? I'll give you flesh. Till you hate it, I'll give it to you. Be careful that you don't demand your own will before God until he gives it to you. Even to your own destruction. God gave them their will. You gave them what they want. They want flesh. You got it. Okay, but you're going to die in the wilderness. Chew it on that. And he did. They did. You know, the Bible says in the Psalm 106, look what it says. So we'll come back over here. Psalm 106, 106, 14, verse 13. They soon forget his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. For what? All after the flesh, right? And tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness unto their soul. You know, you can demand your will. In fact, you can have faith for your will continuously. And you know what? Sometimes God will give it to you. A leanness in the soul? But leanness in their soul. What's your subject? Wasting the evil mind. Wasting the evil mind. Okay. Hey, here's the point. Some people always point to the fact that they received from God as that this was God's will. Not necessarily. You can go after something from God and Him give it to you and you not like it when you got it. In fact, it'd be destructive to you when you got it because you demanded it. Our main purpose is to serve Him. If you have a desire to serve Him, then you're going to be like Jesus. Father, not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but thine be done. Now, I know that some people abuse that verse. They use it to really destroy the Word of God. When the Bible says that by His stripes you were healed, He's not going to turn around and say, no, it's not my will this time. He already made it His will when He healed you at Calvary. So you can't say, well, not my will, but thine be done. Lord, if you want me to be healed. No, Jesus came and revealed He wanted you to be healed. So you can't abuse that verse and twist it and distort it to mean that. But I'm talking about our daily... <clears throat> Walk in this world. The Bible don't tell us where to go tomorrow, does it? It don't tell us where to work. It don't tell us a lot of things, the Bible. Does. It gives us principles by which to go by, but it don't tell us distinctly what to do, where, where to give, who to give to, so on and so forth. It don't give us all those things, does it? No, it don't. So what we got to do is we got to 
find the will of God. And if we desire that, we will find it. The Lord said if anybody was willing to do the will of the Father, he would know of the doctrine. If you're willing to do it, God will make sure you find out. You see? But here's the point. We're servants of his. And when Paul brought his body under submission in order to win that race, what he's saying is we've got to do the same thing. Or else, well, or else die in the wilderness. He went on to say in 1 Corinthians 10 and 7, he said, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. <clears throat> you know, there's several different meanings of idolaters in the Scriptures. Uh, for instance, in Ephesians 5, here's one very good meaning, and I think it's probably a problem with a lot of Christians. Ephesians 5 and verse 5, it says, For this you know of a surety, that no fornicator, nor unclean person, nor a covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. A covetous man is an idolater. You know that? That's a problem that we have in America with Christianity in America. A covetous man is an idolater. And we're, we've been taught that the word covetous means to desire something that belongs to somebody else. But that's not what the word means at all. The word is oleonectes in the Greek. And it means to just desire more. To desire more. The Bible tells us to be content with the things that you have. Right? And, and lusting after things causes you to be pierced through with many foolish and hurtful lusts, Timothy said. Be content. Okay? But he says here that the covetous man, or the man who desires more and more and more, right? He's an idolater. You know what an idol you know what the word idolater, the Greek word is idololatres, and it means a servant to that which is seen. Many people spend all their life serving things. They when they get the things, they have to keep them up. They have to serve them, they have to make them stay pretty, make them keep working, and so on and so forth. So one form of idolatry is covetousness. You know, having to have all these things, having to have them nice, having to have what the Joneses has got, you know, having to be comp competitive with other people, you know. He says that that is idolatry, okay? But the form of idolatry that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 10, he identifies it as the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Well, that that's comes from Exodus 32 and verse 6. Exodus 32 and verse 6. That's where that phrase comes from. There's another form of idolatry. It is putting something or somebody else to rule your life rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? In Exodus 32, if you remember, Moses had gone up into the mountain of God. And when they noticed he'd been gone for a long time, they got Aaron to uh, build him a molten calf. Verse 32 and verse 4. Chapter 32 and verse 4. I will show you the form of idolatry that he's talking about that stops people from entering the promised land. Okay? And he received it at their hands, the what? The gold and the silver that, he, that, they, that they had given him. 
He fashioned it with a graving tool and made a molten calf. And they said, These are thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall you be, shall there be a feast unto, and actually the word there that usually says Lord in your Bible, that, that word is YHWH. It's the name of God Almighty. It's the name that God revealed to Moses. And they said, let's have a feast unto Yahweh or Jehovah. It's been pronounced both ways, but when you put vowels in, nobody knows what the vowels are because God didn't put any in. Men started putting them in. And they started calling it Yahweh or Jehovah, all right? But this was the name of God. You know, they, they built this molten calf and they said, let's have a feast unto Yahweh. In other words, they were calling this molten calf Yahweh or Jehovah, okay? They weren't saying that this was Baal. They were not saying this was Baal. They were saying that this was Jehovah. In fact, back in verse 4, where it says, Sit down and be quiet. Thank you. It says, These are thy gods. You know where it says that? These are thy gods. Do you know that the word gods there is the word Elohim? It's the same word used for our God everywhere else in the Bible. Ten times to one over El, which is the singular. Elohim. In fact, it's the same word down in, in verse 11. Moses besought the Lord his God. Yahweh is Elohim. And yet there they put the word what? God. Singular, right? You see that? That's the same Hebrew word. And it doesn't say, these are thy gods, up in verse 4. It says, this is thy God, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And we're going to have a feast unto Jehovah. Now this is a common word. This is thy God. Because you know what? The word God... When it's, it's Elohim, it's plural. You know why? Because there's the Father. And there's the Son, right? It's not singular. You know, sometimes the word El is used. Every once in a while, the word for God is actually the word El. And it's singular. No, it means mighty. It's Hebrew for mighty. Elohim is mighty ones. That's what the word for God means. Mighty ones. Elohim. Mighty ones. Sometimes... About one out of every ten times, it's used the word El, which is singular. And it's talking to the Father or the Son or about the Spirit. Okay? It's not, in this case, the word Elohim is used. He's not talking about a false God. What he's saying is, this golden calf is Jehovah. Our Elohim. That's what he's saying. Everybody thinks he's talking about a Baal or Shemosh or some of the... No, he's not saying that at all. What they were doing was they were giving a form to the real God that was like the form that they worshipped in Egypt. Because in Egypt, you know what they did? They worshipped the golden calf. And so what they were saying is, Lord, we're going to recreate you in our image. So they worshipped a Jesus, but it wasn't the Jesus of the Bible. And can't you see, it says... And verse 6, And they rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings and, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. So what is he talking about? What's Paul talking about when he uses this book? He's talking about people who have given you a false understanding of Jesus. They said, this is Jesus. 
But a lot of times, if you've got understanding and you look at their Jesus, you know, that's not Jesus. That's not my Jesus, because that's not the Jesus of the Bible. My Jesus always healed. He healed everybody that ever came to him. And they say, well, sometimes Jesus heals, but sometimes he just wants you to keep that. It's good for you. You know, you need to suffer a little bit, right? That, well, they got a different Jesus, you see. And Paul warned us about receiving another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. They still call him Jesus, you see. And so here's the problem. If you want to fall in the wilderness, you fall into idolatry. Idolatry doesn't have to mean that you go to worship Buddha. It can mean you worship Jesus, but the wrong Jesus. See, that's what the whole point is making. This is the wrong Jesus. Yeah, Well, here's the point. What was Jesus saying was for the glory of God? When did, go, when did God get glory out of it? It wasn't when he was sick. I mean, they're still trying to right, pervert the word of God. They've got a different Jesus. <laughs> what, about all the, what about the Jesus of the once saved, always saved? What about the Jesus of all these other false doctrines that destroy your motivation for walking in holiness. And there's lots of them. There's a lot of doctrine that just destroy your motivation to want to be like Jesus. You know? Like the, the theology that when you stepped over that line, you was eschewing, you was going to the kingdom of heaven. You can't find that in the scripture. I desire to put you in remembrance, brethren, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, later destroyed them that believed not. So what, you know, what Jesus said was, Hey, he that endures to the end shall be saved. Yeah, we stepped we stepped into this kingdom at a certain point in time, but you gotta keep on walking in the Lord. Or you're gonna be, Paul himself said, a reprobate. And you think that might be uncommon? It's not uncommon. There are a lot of reprobates. Because there's a lot of people don't want to accept the hard sayings of Jesus. It's much easier to recreate Jesus than to say I'm wrong. And so what they do? They recreate Jesus. We put up this golden calf. There's Jesus, you see. This is the one brought us out of Egypt. He's the one that delivered us. And let me tell you something. All the denominations in a form or a fashion are doing just exactly that. They've all made... Huh? That's right. All of us in a form or a fashion. We've got to be delivered of that. Because in our mind, we've got our idea of what Jesus is. The Bible says, be transformed by renewing your mind. In other words, change your mind when you read that Bible. This is Jesus. Your ideas of Jesus, you know, we, but I think the particular person that she had that dream about, that person would not change their mind. They would not change their mind. And that's why they left. Because they wanted somebody to just pat them on the back and say, everything's going to be all right. You're going to be okay. That's all they wanted. And when you don't say that, you say, no, this is what the Word says. They're gone. There's a lot of people like that. They'd rather recreate Jesus in their own image than recreate themselves in the image of Jesus. Hey, this is the Jesus. You know, anything else is idolatry. You can still call him Jesus and still be idolatry. You know what? <clears throat> there was one group when, when uh, Moses came on the scene, he ground up that golden calf, and he made them drink that. He threw that in the water and he made them drink that. And and he said something here in uh, verse uh, 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoso is on the Lord's side, let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Wait a minute. Did you notice that the other tribes didn't even gather around him? Moses said, Who's on the Lord's side? You come right here. 
You know what? All the proud of Levi want. Nobody else will. You know what? They want on the Lord's side. You know what? Levi here represents the same thing that Judah did at one time. All through history, there's been one tribe that stuck out above the rest. One time it was Joseph. One time it was Judah. You know, another time it was Ephraim. Okay? What happened to Judah? Well, Judah was the only tribe that stayed with David's house and worshipped at the true temple of God, while the northern ten tribes departed from the ways of the Lord. And what did they do? Jeroboam went and set up two golden calves. And they worshipped those golden calves. And they still claimed that that was Jehovah. Okay? The northern ten tribes departed from the Lord and recreated God in their own image. Still the same today. It's still the same today. It happened in the time of Judah. It happened in the time when Levi, the Levitical priest, separated unto Moses and said, Okay, we're on the Lord's side. You know what Moses said? Okay, gather your sword up, go throughout the camp, put to death those people who worshipped the golden calf. You know what happened to Jesus when he came? You stop and think about it. When Jesus came, all those denominations that Judaism had split up into, Jesus didn't side with none of them. You know why? Because it was all wrong. They have all had worshipped the golden calf. You know what? The sword, the word that he brought forth, was putting to death the carnal ideas of those people. And you know what? A tribe, spiritually speaking, separated from them and came over to be with Jesus. But most of Judaism rejected Jesus. You know what the problem is today? Well, we're running into the same problem today. Is that people would rather believe their religion, they'd rather say, my church is right, than to say, no, the Word of God is right. I accept the Word of God. We'd all eventually come into a unity of the faith if we were just determined to say, the Word of God is right. And you can't trust man. Jesus didn't have any trust in man's religions. Uh, the vision that I shared with you some time back God told me what the golden calf was today. In this modern day, he told me what the golden calf was. I was standing on a hill in this vision, and I saw power lines coming over this hill. They were putting up the power lines. They had already put up the poles, and they were hanging the big high-tension power lines off these metal poles. And I could see they were bringing power, you know, like they bring the big power lines into a city, you know. They were bringing power over this hill. And I looked down there beside me, and there was an old cow laying on the ground. And that old cow was all shriveled up and it was just about to die. You could tell by looking at it. And while I was looking at that, I bent down and I picked up a big baby boy off the ground right next to that cow. And I picked up that big baby boy and I walked over and I got on like an escalator. And as I was going up this escalator, I met a woman with a normal sized baby. And she looked at this baby and she said, that looks like a real baby boy. And I said, yeah, I wonder how that could be. And I looked around at that old cow. And you know, they had picked up that old cow on a front end loader and they were moving this cow out of the way. They were going down the hill with this cow, moving him off the hill, going down. This man-child that was born of that cow was going up. But that cow was going down. And the next part of the vision, the vision changed and I was going into this minister's conference and I saw just a, a lot of famous ministers there. Okay, I saw Jimmy Swagger there. And uh, Jimmy Swagger, in this vision, walked over to me and handed me some papers. And, and as he handed them to me, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me and said, this is his propaganda about what he has accomplished. 
and he emphasized he, what he has accomplished. And that was the end of it. But the Lord showed me. He said that those ministers are the bulls of Bashan. You ever read about the bulls of Bashan? In the Psalms, there is a quote in there from Jesus. He said, The bulls of Bashan have compassed me about. They gape upon me with their teeth. And it was a prophecy about Jesus when he was encompassed about by the religious leaders of Judaism and how they gaped upon him with their teeth. And God told me that they are the bulls of Bashan. And as I thought on it, the Lord told me it because they sowed the seed in the cow. The bulls sowed the seed in the cow, right? You know what the cow is? God told me that that cow in this day was the religious organizations of men. It's the golden calf that in this day has come to full maturity and is about to die and pass off the scene. And you know what? Without that cow being moved out of your life, the real power of God can't come over that hill. That cow was in the way of them running the power lines. They came up there and moved that cow off that hill in order to run those power lines. The real power of God comes when you get delivered of the organizations of men. Am I saying separate from all the... No, I'm not saying that. We're not to be separated from any of God's people. Here's the whole point. They're the ones doing the separating. We're not to accept any separation between us and a Baptist or a Methodist or Assembly of God or Pentecost. None of those separations. Jesus prayed, Father, I pray that they may be one. See, we're not to accept that. They make the division by saying, well, I'm one of these, or I'm one of these, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm Remember that? That's what Paul said. No, we're not to make any separation. But we are to separate ourselves from the false Jesuses that are out there in the religions. And the only way you can do that, along with every other child of God, is to get into this book and find out what Jesus really looks like. We need to know what Jesus really looks like. You know, what he, who's the real Jesus? You ever remember that thing they used to have? I don't know what the name of it. Will the real so-and-so stand up? You know? Hey, you tell the truth. That was it. Yeah. Will the real Jesus stand up? There's only one way you're ever going to see the real Jesus. And the only way you're going to be transformed into his image from glory to glory is you've got to see him in the mirror. You've got to see this Jesus in the mirror. Otherwise, there's no power in your life to be transformed into his image. See? And so we've got to know the real Jesus. That's not to say we're to separate or, or be angry or look down on somebody who doesn't see the real Jesus because we only see him in a, in a, in a part, right? We see him to the extent we see him, right? So you see him in the mirror dimly. We see him in the mirror dimly, that's right. But then, when that which is perfect has come, but then, face to face. We expect, if we keep on humbling ourselves to this word, that eventually we're going to see the real Jesus. Now that, we're going to look just like him. Everyone that has this hope on him purifies himself, even as he is pure. If he shall be manifested, he's talking about in you, you're going to be like him. Because you're going to see him as he is. First thing is that's true. You know, um, the idolatry that's prevalent in the church that's keeping people from reaching the promised land is an idolatry of worshiping your religion and putting it ahead of what this word says. Many times if you come to somebody and show them what the word says, and they say, but we don't believe that. We 
don't believe that. Well, we believe this. Yeah, but what's this say? You know? And what does this say? What does this say? Oh, it doesn't matter. We don't believe that. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve in his craftiness, your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity and the purity that's towards Christ. For if he, if he that cometh to you preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or if you receive a different spirit which you did not receive, or a different gospel which you did not accept, you bear well with them. Hey, here's the point. You know, there's a curse. There is an idolatrous situation if you accept as an authority your religion or your past thinking more than you accept what this Word says when you, when you read it today. We need to humble ourselves to this Word. We need to look in this Word with, uh, with the idea that this Word is new to us every day, that God wants to talk to us, that this is God Almighty talking to us. That's why we need to look at this Word. This is God Almighty talking to me. And what could man say that's more important than this? I don't care what man, any respected man, somebody that you respect, they shouldn't be more respectful than this. Paul said, follow me as I follow the Lord. He didn't expect anybody to follow him if he wasn't following the Lord. And uh, the point is, you're in idolatry to the extent that you accept what your religion has to say and don't look in here to find out what God has to say. Paul says, seek out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Seek out your own salvation. Individual, we have to seek out our own salvation. We can't trust in anything that people have told us. Hey, I've been through some religion. And I found out you can't trust anything people tell you, even the people that you respect so much. Ultimately, you're going to find out that they told you something that's wrong. And you respect them so much, you, know? you think so much. But ultimately, you're going to find out that they told you some wrong things. But not, God's not hold, is going to hold you responsible because you've got God's word. He's going to hold you responsible to find out what God wants. Ultimately, it's going to come down to us. Every man shall bear his own burden. The Bible says. We are responsible to find out what God wants of us. Otherwise, we're going to be in idolatry. You know, the Levitical priesthood, as I started to say, the Levitical priesthood were separated because they were on the Lord's side, right? And uh, Levi, the Levitical priesthood, would not serve the golden calf. And they proved it when Moses came and said, who was on the Lord's side? Well, they were right there, but nobody else came. The rest of them had all served, and were serving, the golden calf. But you know who God chose to serve the tabernacle? Who was it? That's right. It was the Levitical priesthood. Uh, for instance, look at uh, Numbers chapter 1. Let me just read you this real quick. Line. Why did God confer this on Levi? Watch. Verse 47. Numbers 1 and 47. God didn't even number the Levites among the children of Israel. Did you know that? That's right. He numbered them completely different from the children of Israel. Because they were on the Lord's side. What was that one Numbers 1 and 47. But the Levites, after the tribe of their fathers, were not numbered among them. For the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi thou shalt not number, neither shalt thou take the sum of them among the children of Israel. But appoint thou the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all the furniture thereof, and over all that belongeth to it, 
They shall bear the tabernacle and all the furniture thereof, and they shall minister under it, and shall encamp around about the tabernacle. Who was it that had God in their midst? It was Levi. And who was it that served the true tabernacle of God? It was Levi. Who was it that had served the golden calf? It was the other eleven tribes. And who was it in David's day? Well, Judah's the only one that's held with David, the Bible says. Okay, and verse 51 goes on. And when the tabernacle set it forth, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Remember Yuzah? When the tabernacle was coming to town and Yuzah stuck his hand up there to, to steady the Ark of the Covenant? And he struck dead. And you remember when the, uh, the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant? And when it came back to the Israelite side, they wanted to look at it and make sure that, I guess, that the, that the Philistines hadn't stolen all the goodies out of the tabernacle, you know? And they opened it, and thousands of them died. You know why? He said, the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Who's he calling a stranger? You know, he's talking about Israel here. The Levite was the one that wasn't a stranger. And a type and a shadow now. I want you to see us in a type and a shadow. I'll try to look at it in the flesh. But as a type and shadow, the stranger was the rest of Israel. But the one who the Spirit of God dwelt in was the Levite. They, the tabernacle was literally in the midst of the camp of Levi. And they were the only ones who could touch the ark. The Kohathites, which was uh, one of the sons of Levi himself, was Kohath, and his sons were appointed to handle the ark of the covenant. Anybody else touched it? They were dead. That's all. Yeah. And you know, the point is, he was calling the rest of Israel strangers here. They'd be put to death. But they watched. It reads on, it says, The children of Israel shall fix their tents, every man by his own camp, and every man by his own standard, according to their hosts. But the Levites shall encamp round about the tabernacle of the testimony, that there be no wrath upon the congregation of the children of Israel. You know what? God's telling us this is a parable for today. I mean, Paul just said that over in the first Corinthians chapter. This is a parable for today. You know, there are those Christians in whom the Spirit of God dwells, who serve the true tabernacle of God, but don't serve the golden calf. But I'm going to tell you something. According to what God told me in the vision that he showed me, most of the children of God are serving the golden calf today. Most of the children of God are serving the golden calf. And if you go ask them, you know, what did the Spirit lead you to do today? They'll look at you cross-eyed. What do you mean? Because if if their church or their pastor didn't tell them to do something, they just didn't do anything. You understand? To serve the tabernacle is to serve the true Spirit of God. We've been created. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We've been created to serve the Spirit of God. Not a religion. See, so many of God's people are under the law. Rules and regulations. They know that they've got to go to church on Sunday. They know that they've got to pay their tithes. They know they've got, they've got all these rules and regulations. But there ain't no servant of the Spirit in their life. Here's the point. We study the rules and regulations so we know the nature of Jesus, so that we know the voice of the Spirit, so that we can serve Him. In the Old Testament, they served the rules and regulations. We're to serve Jesus. 
We're not going to disobey any of God's rules and regulations when we serve the Spirit of God. We're not going to do it. But the point is, they point to Him. He's the one we serve. Every day we've got to serve the Spirit by doing what we know is right according to our conscience, which has been educated by the Word of God. Right? And so, that's Levi. Um, here's another example. In uh, Numbers 3, the next page over, in verse 6 it says, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him. And they shall keep his charge. Who was, who was Aaron? Yeah, but he was the high priest. He represents Jesus in his high priesthood. Okay? Levi was given to Aaron. You know what Aaron means? The word Aaron means light. Levi was given. Watch. And they shall keep his charge and the charge of the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They served the tabernacle. They served the congregation. See, we were created to serve God's people. We are, because God's people are the tabernacle. Do you understand that? In the New Testament, God's people are the tabernacle. You know, when Jesus, in Matthew 26, said, What should you do to the least of these, my brethren? Did you feed them? Did you clothe them? Did you visit them when they were in prison? And he separated sheep and goats by what they did with his tabernacle. Which was what? His brothers and sisters. So that's how God separates sheep and goats. Did you serve his tabernacle? Okay. Um, and they shall keep all the furniture of the tent of the meeting and the charge of the children of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. And thou shalt give the Levites unto Aaron and to his sons. Why? Because his sons were the uh, high priesthood. Right? The, but the Levites were given as a gift unto Aaron. They are wholly given unto him. Actually, the word is given. Given. It's a, the word is repeated twice. Given. Given. Like a bride is given to her husband. Levi was given to Aaron. They're yours to serve you and to serve the tabernacle. You see that? The people of God who don't serve the golden calf but serve the tabernacle, they are the ones that are going to be given to the high priest. Let me tell you something. It's a lie that's been taught in the churches. That the bride is the whole church. That's false. I'm telling you, you can see, I can show you from one end of the Bible to the other, that don't hold water nowhere in the Bible. The whole church was all of Israel. But that ain't what God chose. You know why? He called his son out of Egypt. But he didn't choose all of those people that he called out of Egypt. There are many called, but few chosen. See? All the called are God's people. But all the chosen are the elect. You understand what I'm saying? The chosen are those who overcame in the wilderness and came to the promised land. The rest of them died in the wilderness. They were called. The word is kaleo. It means invited. You've been invited to God's promised land. But whether you make it, it's strictly up to you. That's right. And it, the word there is kaleo. The word there, invited, is kaleo. We've been invited. But many are called, that's the word invited, kaleho, but few are chosen. That's also the word eclectos, it means elect. You want to know who the elect are? The ones that are going to be chosen. They are the ones who are going to overcome in the wilderness. They are the ones who are going to go to the promised land of God. Okay? And these Levites were given to Aaron, given, given unto him, on behalf of the children of Israel. 
And thou shalt appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall keep their priesthood. And the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, And I, behold, have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel. Watch this. And I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn that openeth the womb among the children of Israel. And the Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn of Israel, both man and beast. What, you know what the firstborn represented? Well, the death angel came through Egypt and smote the firstborn of Egypt. But he saved alive the firstborn of Israel. Well, thank you, Brother David, and God bless you. Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I praise you and I glorify you for the word that you've given us. The word that's above all words, the name that's above all names, the, the Lord Jesus. And I praise you, Father, for the words that he gave us, the standards that we live by. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for giving us spiritual eyes to see today the, the, the authority that you've given us. And I praise you and I glorify you for all that you're going to do in this teaching today. In Jesus name. What I want to talk about having spiritual eyes to see. Second Peter 1 and 1 says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained a like precious faith. Now he's talking about believers here. With us in the righteousness of our God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You know, knowledge can keep you from falling away because grace and peace are multiplied through that knowledge. You can't fall away if you have grace, which is the unmerited favor of God. People lose the favor of God. And that's why they fall away. But by faith, what you receive through grace is how you keep it. Second Peter 1 and 3 says, Seeing that his divine power hath granted unto us. Folks, this is the gospel that is already been done. All things that pertain unto life. And that word is Zoe. And that is God's life as opposed to Suke. That's the soulish life. Then it goes on and says, and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us by his own glory and virtue. And that makes knowledge real important. And the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 13, happy is the man that finds wisdom and the man that gets understanding for the gaining of it is better than the gaining of silver and the profit thereof than fine gold. You seek wisdom as gold. Seek knowledge. Second Peter 1 and 4 says, whereby he hath granted unto us his precious and exceeding great promises that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature. That divine nature is the 36 and 100 fold fruit of the life of Christ, okay? He was the sower who sowed the seed. The seed was his word, and that went into their hearts in order to bring forth that fruit. But three out of the four of those groups who heard the word 
they didn't go on to bear fruit. Only one out of the four bore the fruit. And of course, the partakers of the divine nature do so through the knowledge of these promises. The most important thing that you can do is to sit down and read the New Testament. Then he goes on to say in Second Peter 1 and 4, Whereby he hath granted unto us his precious and exceeding great promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world by lust. If you don't have any corruption because you sought the knowledge of God, since it was important to you and it brought you into the fruit of the divine nature, then how can you fall away? It ain't going to happen, folks. Second Peter 1 and 5 says, Yea, and for this very cause, adding on your part all diligence in your faith. God wants you to be diligent in your faith. That's the very, faith is the very first attribute. And you have to be diligent to use this gift of faith that you've been given. Second Peter 1 and 5 says, Yea, and for this very cause, adding on your part all diligence in your faith, supply virtue. And in your virtue, knowledge. Now, if you'll notice, every one of these are wrapped up in faith. So inside your faith comes this gift of virtue, and in your virtue comes knowledge. And each succeeding attribute of Christ mentioned here is found inside the previous attribute. Now, some scripture versions don't translate this that way, but that's what the original says. So you got to go with what the original says, don't you? All these attributes are inside faith. And if you have faith and you exercise faith, you're going to receive all the benefits of salvation. And that includes these attributes. But first, you need to know what to exercise faith for. Second Peter 1 and 6 says, and in your knowledge, self-control. Some people think that they're not able to control themselves because they don't know that this gift has been given to them in faith through the knowledge of the word. And in your, it goes on and says, and in your self-control, patience. James says we are to, in James 1 and 4, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect in empire, lacking in nothing. Then it goes on to say, and in your patience, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, they make you to be not idle nor unfruitful unto the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Coming to know the Lord starts with knowledge of the word. You bear fruit because you exercise faith in the knowledge of the word, the promises, and you take on his divine nature. And this is what it is to come to the, to, to know the Lord. Second Peter 1 and I said, for he that lacks these things is blind, seeing only what is near. And when scripture talks about seeing things that are near and about being nearsighted, this is when you don't see off into the future. You don't see the end from the beginning. It goes on and says, having forgotten the cleansing from his old sin. How many of you know that your sins were taken away? 
When you were baptized with Christ, you were made free from sin. It says in Romans 6, 18 and 22. If you're exercising faith in it. James also speaks about seeing things that are near. James 1, 21. Wherefore, putting away all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word. That word for implanted is inborn, just like in the seed of the parable of the sword. The word goes into your heart, and it bears fruit. And it goes on to say, which is able to save your souls. Those who are saved in soul or bear fruit in their soul are going to receive a new body. Now, of course, he's speaking to believers here, James 1, 1 and 2, James 1, 1 and 2. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deluding your own self. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding a natural face in the mirror. So he's nearsighted. He sees only what is physical in this world. He doesn't see the gift from heaven, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians one twenty-seven. And somebody who sees his natural face in the mirror is someone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer. In other words, He's not bearing any fruit of the word. He's going to fall away. Seeing your natural face is the opposite of faith. If Paul taught us to say it's no more I that live, but Christ that lives in me, in Galatians 2.20, then you look in the mirror by faith and you imagine that you see Jesus in the mirror. That's how faith works. And scripture also says that in 2 Corinthians 3 and 18. We are with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. Folks, that's bearing fruit. People who only see their natural face and, and bemoan themselves because they know what the scripture says, but they don't know how to get there. So they try to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and they fail. Those people are trying to gain salvation by works and it ain't going to happen. But you can see Jesus in the mirror if you accept that he made reconciliation when you came up from your baptism, that he bore your sins away on that cross, gave you his life, that the one who lives that resurrection life in you now is Jesus. And anybody who sees their uh, only their natural face in the mirror is seeing only who they are now and what they are now. What a failure. They are now and on and on and on. But you can't have faith and condemnation at the same time, folks. The devil loves to conquer people through a spirit of condemnation because there's no faith in condemnation. James one twenty four. But he beholdeth himself and goes away and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But he that looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and so continues, being not a hearer, that forgetteth, but a doer that works. This man shall be blessed in his doing. And if any man thinks himself to be religious, while he bridleth not his tongue, but deceives his heart, this man's religion is vain. Well, now with that background, we can return back to Second Peter 1 and 9. For he that lacks these things is blind, seeing only what is near. And the person that sees only the natural, the near things, is spiritually blind. And it goes on and says, Having forgotten the cleansing from his old sin, 
you need to remember that you were cleansed of your sins. That person don't live anymore. So you don't have the problem of seeing your natural face in the mirror. You died with Christ, Galatians 2.20, as the Bible says, and that's the good confession, 1 Timothy 6.12-13. through 13. That's the gospel, and if you don't hold to the gospel, you're going to fall away because salvation is not going to be by man's works. It's going to be by faith in God. God's the one who does this in us. He does it for free, but he does it for faith, and he's given you a gift of faith to get you there, Ephesians 2 and 5. Second Peter 1.10 says, Wherefore, brethren, give the more diligence to make your calling and election sure. Jesus said in Matthew 22.14, For many are called, but few chosen. If you're called, that means you were invited. We are invited to partake of the benefits of Christ until we come into his image. Second Christians 3 and 18 says, again, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. We are invited to partake of that. Peter said to be diligent. To make your calling and election sure, because the Greek word eklektos, which is translated as election, means chosen. Not every one of the many who are called is chosen. And we see this is true in the parable of the sower. And of course, when the master comes to inspect his field, he's coming to pick the fruit. The fruit is the new born again man from heaven. He's not coming to pick the stalk. He ain't coming to pick the plant. He ain't coming to pick the leaves. He don't want the dirt. He wants only the fruit. And those are the ones that are chosen. Second Peter 1.10 says, Wherefore, brethren, give the more diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never stumble. So you don't fall away if you do these things. And, and I want you to notice that this was all given to you as a free gift from God. You don't have to walk in sin anymore. And that's what faith is. And this is what the gospel is. Although there's been a bunch of them that forgot it and don't understand what the gospel is, God gave it to us. Second Peter 1 and 10 says, Wherefore, brethren, give the more diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never stumble. For thus shall be richly supplied unto you the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Most people think they entered the kingdom when they first got saved. Well, when you first got saved, only your spirit entered the kingdom. But if you don't bear fruit in your soul, your soul won't enter the kingdom. And that's where the great falling away comes in. It's the people who don't bear fruit. And I want you to notice this says entrance into the eternal kingdom. So where do we enter into the kingdom? Well, it's here and it's now that we enter into the kingdom. It ain't somewhere in the starry sky that you enter into the kingdom. The kingdom is where God rules. And when you do these things, God rules in you. Luke 17 and 20 says, And being asked by the Pharisees, When the kingdom of God comes, 
He, now this is Jesus talking, answered them and said, The kingdom of God comes not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo, here or there, for lo, the kingdom of God is within you. Are you looking up in the sky for it? That ain't where you enter into it. You enter in right here and now through bearing the fruit of Jesus Christ through the dominion of God over you. And that's how you enter in. And that's how you will not fall away by doing that. Yet, even though the entrance into the eternal kingdom is being offered to them, most so-called Christians are going to reject this because they won't read the scriptures themselves. But they put their trust in man. There are many false prophets out there who are ready to deceive you into thinking that you just shake a preacher's hand and folks, you're in. That is a lying antichrist spirit there to deceive you and keep you from going in there. Second Peter 2 and 1. But there arose false prophets also among the people, as among you also there shall be false teachers who shall privily bring in destructive heresies, denying even the master that bought them. They deny Christ because they deny the word of God who is Christ. Then it goes on saying, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Well, that's true. These people don't know where the, their end is because they shouldn't have been teachers in the first place. They went to some Bible college like all the Pharisees and Sadducees did. And they got that little paper, that certificate, and they think that made them qualified. But Jesus said in Revelation 2.26, He that overcometh and he that keeps my word unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations. And having authority is having dominion. These false prophets have knowledge, but it's false knowledge. And that's why these are false prophets. Second Peter 2 and 2 says, And many shall follow their lascivious doings. In other words, they're licentious. They use their freedom to do whatever they want to do, and many are following them. Many are going to take the mark of the beast. It goes on and says, By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Yeah, so much so that the world does not respect Christianity because of the corruption that's in it. Corruption that ought not to be there if a person knew the gospel and followed what we just read in Second Peter 1. There's much corruption there, especially at the top. Very top. Second Peter 2 and 3 says, In covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Those false prophets make money off of God's people while they're teaching things that ought not to do. And they inflate their ego off of God's people because they're little bitty kings out there. It goes on and says, Whose sentence now from of old lingers not, and their destruction slumbers not. For if God spared not angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell and committed them to pits of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. In other words, if he did it to the angels, he's going to do it to you too. Five, and spared not the ancient world, but preserved Noah with seven others, a preacher of righteousness. You know, it's sobering to think about that many people just gone gone forever. 
continuing on, he said, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, you know, and yet Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Then number six, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, having made them an example. God wants examples. He put them in the Bible for us to fear before him. Unto those that should live ungodly, seven, and delivered righteous lot, sore distressed by the lascivious life of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vest, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their lawless deeds. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. Yes, you can depend upon him to strengthen you and to empower you to walk away from temptation because he delivered you at the cross, glory to God. However, if you walk in willful disobedience, or in other words, if you know what's right, but you're going to sin anyway, then you're going to be judged. There ain't no way out of it. You don't have a sacrifice. Hebrews 10 and 26 says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversaries. You see, failure is one thing. Willful disobedience is another. With failure, you can repent and confess your sin and escape the penalty, for your will is to do right. If you have been willfully disobedient, you need to repent and turn back to God quickly so that the penalty is going to be less because these willful sin folks are sins unto death. It says this in First John chapter 5. They're going to take you down the road to death and they can be manifested as a measure of or even the fullness of spiritual death or physical death or both. Second Peter 2 and 9 says the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment unto the day of judgment. There are people that are living under a curse, but they still think they're righteous because they accepted Jesus or something that makes them feel justified. Apostle Paul warned us about this very thing in Romans 8 and 13. He says, for if you live after the flesh, you must die. And if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. The Second Peter 2 and 9 says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment unto the day of judgment. 10. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust and defilement and despise dominion, the unrighteous won't submit to real authority. When Jesus came, that authority was him. When he raised up his disciples, it was them. These people had real authority because the word of God lived in them. But the religious crowd, those who stood upon the pomp and other things, such as the name of the denomination they belonged to, all lost it. And it ain't no different today. Ecclesiastes 1.9 That which hath been is that which shall be and that which hath been done is that which shall be done and there is no new thing under the sun. 
Second Peter 2 9 says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment unto the day of judgment. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of defilement and despise dominion. Daring, self-willed, they tremble not to rail at dignities. People have done this throughout history. Throughout the Bible, they always railed at dignities or glories, as the Greek word doxa actually means. The glories are the 30, 60, and 100-fold manifestation of Christ in us. They are the star glories, moon glories, and sun glories of 1 Corinthians 15, 35, and 41, who are manifesting the fruit of Christ. The unrighteous that don't have any fruit are railing at the people who do have fruit, or else they wouldn't be railing at them. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says, the, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment unto the day of judgment, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of defilement and despise dominion, daring, self-willed, they tremble not to rail at dignities. People have done this throughout history. Throughout the Bible, they always railed at dignities or glories, as the Greek word doxa actually means. The glories are the 30, 60, and 100-fold manifestation of Christ in you. They are the star glories, the moon glories, and sun glories of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, who are manifesting fruit. The unrighteous who don't have any fruit, are railing at the people who do have fruit, or else they wouldn't be railing at them. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 says, Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, bring not a railing judgment against them before the Lord. Now, angels could certainly do that if it were a right thing to do. They could do it very easily because they obviously serve God and the people that they're attempting to bring into the kingdom don't. Verse 12, but these as creatures without reason, born bare animals to be taken and destroyed. Now, folks, this is God's words. Railing in matters whereof they are ignorant. You know, people can be real self-righteous at times. They want to defend their flesh and they love doctors that enable them to live in sin. And they don't like people who are holy because holy people convict them. Self-righteous people don't want to be convicted because then they have to give up their sin. and They don't want to be held responsible to give up that sin. Second Peter 2 and 12. But these as creatures without reason, born bare animals to be taken and destroyed, railing in matters whereof they are ignorant, shall in their destroying surely be destroyed. You don't have to do anything against these people. They destroy themselves. They are among those in that great falling away. Verse 13, suffering wrong as the hire of wrongdoing, men that count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, spots and blemishes. And of course, God is choosing a bride without spot or blemishes, isn't he? And these have nothing to do with it. The spots and blemishes, that's their sins. And it goes on and says, reveling in their deceivings while they feast with you. Folks, there's so many people out there with a spirit of rejection. They want to see themselves as somebody who is right and perfect and 
Woe be unto anybody who convicts them or corrects them. And that's because of their rejection. They've opened themselves up to unforgiveness, criticism, faction, and witchcraft. And they're just plain mean, just exactly as they were throughout the Bible. Their forefathers throughout the Bible persecuted the prophets and the righteous people. History always repeats, and you can see the same thing is happening today. We see it right here. Second Peter 2.14 says, Having eyes full of adultery. I can't tell you how many of the people who fell into the faction had spirits of lust and adultery and even homosexuality. But it was because they judged others who were righteous when they themselves were not. And so they were hiding their sins. God turned them over to some of the nastiest sins that you can imagine. And he's done that throughout history. Matthew 7 and 2 says, For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured unto you. And this verse is talking about judging others. When you judge someone, you're going to be judged with what measure you should judge them. And God is quite able to bring people down who think that they are God and that they are the judge. You can show them scripture and verses in an effort to try to convict them, but it ain't going to make a bit of difference in the world because when God has turned you over to sin, folks, you're turned over. Second Peter 2.14, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unsteadfast soul, having a heart exercised in covetousness. That is so true. These people are thieves. If given a chance to steal from you, they'll do it. And it goes on to say, children of cursing. We've been warned by the Lord many times about the witchcraft people sending curses towards us. And what we do is we just cast them down in the name of Jesus because what they sow, they're going to reap. And what they do uh, is coming back on them. Second Peter 2 and 14, having eyes full of adultery. And that cannot cease from sin, enticing unsteadfast souls, having a heart exercised in covetousness, children of cursing, forsaking the right way they went astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the hire of, of wrongdoing. In other words, Balaam had lust, and when he was offered something that he really wanted, he was willing to do wrong to get it. And that's the same way with Christians today. They make their doctrines up and they'll say, God told me to do it. They'll do anything they can do to get what they want. And they're, they're being bribed by sin, bribed by lust to do wrong. And of course, God was very angry with Balaam. That donkey, he had, had more sense than he did. Second Peter 2.15 says, for second Forsaking the right way, they went astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the hire of wrongdoing. But he was rebuked for his own transgression. A dumb ass spake with man's voice and stayed the madness. This is the Greek word paraphernalia, meaning, meaning folly, insane irrational behavior describing someone acting out of their mind. 
stayed the madness of the prophet. Balaam was certainly out of his mind because he didn't realize that a stupid donkey was talking to him. <laughs> Second Peter 2 and 17 said, These are springs without water. There ain't no true word in them. And myths driven by a storm for whom the blackness of darkness hath been reserved. God knew of them from the foundation of the world. He knows what he uses them as, which is vessels of dishonor, and he has reserved a place for them. Verse 18, for uttering great swelling words of vanity, they entice in the lusts of the flesh by lasciviousness. That word lasciviousness means a license to do whatever you want to do, and the true word of God does not permit that. Goes on and says, those who are just escaping from them that live in error. They're deceiving those who sometimes go from error to error. In verse 19, promising them liberty while they themselves are bondservants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome of the same as he also brought into bondage. The harlot is held guilty for the blood of the saints and of the prophets. Not only did they kill the saints and the prophets, but they lied to them. They deceived them. They tempted them. They tested them with these lascivious doctrines that permitted them to live any way they wanted to live, all the while thinking that they can still go to heaven. When a person is deceived with that, know that they are falling away. Second Peter 2 and 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice that this is the people who have come to the Lord. They escaped the lusts of their flesh in the beginning. But then God brought up things to them in their soul, in their mind, in their will and emotions that they needed to overcome. And of course, they weren't accounted guilty until God revealed these things because James 4 and 17 says, To him therefore that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's a sin. They weren't guilty until they were tested, tried, and failed. When you don't have the knowledge of sin in your ignorance, God gives you that dispensation of innocence that Adam and Eve had. But when God shows you your sin to you and you deny it because you'd rather stay where you are, then you're going to be judged because you want to live in your sin. You're falling away. Second Peter 2.20 says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The last state has become worse with them than the first. That's because they they now know the truth, and now they have denied it again. Second Peter two twenty one. For it were better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Sadly, I know a lot of people like this. They received a lot of truth when they came to our ministry, and they were held responsible to what they received. The Bible says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, And to whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom they commit much, of him will they ask the more. In other words, to whom much is given, much is expected. But these people came to a place where they plateaued and they didn't want to go any further. They didn't want to give up the sins they were in and tried to hide them as they always do. While they feast with you. And when that 
happened, they became leavened to the body, and the Lord wouldn't permit it. And so like the son of perdition, they were revealed as they fell away. Now, I ain't saying that everybody is a son of perdition in that manner. No, I'm not. According to Jesus' revelation in the parable of sore, three out of four fell away. I don't believe there are that many sons of perdition, but they are at least counted among that number. Second Peter 2.22, it says, It has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog turning to his own vomit again and the sow that had washed to wallowing in the mire. You know, it's real sad to have gone that far with the Lord only to turn back. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 says, For as touching those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fell away, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. If somebody goes that far, if they taste of the good powers of the age to come and yet they still fall away, it's impossible to move them to repentance. Now, that's not everybody. That's somebody that has gone too far to turn back. Peter says it's worse for you to turn back than if you had never known the Lord because now you've got the knowledge and the power to walk with the Lord, but you chose not to. People in the world don't have power to walk with the, with the Lord. Only once you come into the kingdom because you've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord, only then do you have power to walk with the Lord. And at that point, if you turn back, when you've had power to walk with the Lord, but you've decided not to, you're held much more responsible. There are people who are just totally in denial. They see themselves as this great so-and-so. And they've been all puffed up by the devil. And truly, they're nobody because they don't have any fruit. And they haven't obeyed the Lord. And that's similar to what it says in Jude chapter 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Well, the reason he addressed them as call is because he's getting ready to warn them that they can fall away. Verse three, beloved, while I was giving all diligence to write unto you of our common salvation. So they've entered into salvation and they have a born again spirit but not necessarily born-again soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions. It goes on and says, I was constrained to write unto you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints. It is so important that we contend for only what the Bible says. I don't care what the religious believe. And if it's not helping them, it's not going to help you either. And if it's not bringing them into the image of Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ, the one who walked this earth, the one who set the captives free, then they're bearing Antichrist. 
if it's not bringing them into the image of the one who believed in healing and deliverance and salvation to the uttermost in Hebrews 7.25, then they're bearing anti-Christ. If they're not believing in that Jesus and coming into his image with his doctrine, then they're bearing anti-Christ. And remember that against means anti, but it can also mean in place of. Jesus warned the Pharisees in Matthew 12 and 30. He said, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters. Jude chapter 1 and verse 4 says, for there are certain men crept in privily, even they who were of old, written of beforehand, into this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Grace causes you to be an overcomer. Grace is not just so you're forgiven and then you go on to continue in your sins. No, grace is forgiveness for when you fail. Grace is forgiveness for when you're ignorant. Grace is not when you're willfully disobedient. You don't get grace there. And remember that Paul rebuked people for turning God's grace into lasciviousness. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We who died to sin, how shall we any longer live therein? And they were thinking, Why don't I continue in sin so that grace may abound? But, folks, lasciviousness is the ultimate end of that doctrine. Judge uh, Jude 1 and 4. For there are certain men crept in privily, even they who were of old written of beforehand unto this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, not only are they denying the Lord in their own life, they're denying the Lord in other people's lives too because of teaching that lasciviousness. And I'm telling you, don't make a mistake about it. They are guilty of the blood of the saints. Some people make the harlot, who is the mother of harlots, this particular religion or that particular religion, but she's the mother that bore them all, that bore all of the dead religions, which teach people lasciviousness. And it don't matter what church you're in. You're a member of the harlot if you're receiving a seed. That's not the seed of the king. Jude 1 and 5 says, I desire to put you in remembrance, though you know all things once for all. Listen, he really wants us to remember this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed them that believed not. He started out by saying they had a common salvation, that they were called of God and were invited to partake of the benefits of the kingdom. But now he's warning them. He's warning them that even though God saved the people, he later destroyed them because they didn't continue in the faith. And you know, our faith is supposed to be growing from day to day because our knowledge is supposed to be growing. You're supposed to be growing in the faith exponentially as you come to know more and more about God and his promises because your faith expands to cover these things. Jews said that afterwards God destroyed them that believed not because the Israelites were tested in the wilderness to see if they would believe what God said. Yet they moaned and they 
groaned and complained and spoke about going back to Egypt. And they did so in their heart, as the Bible shows. And there are many people who have gone back to Egypt to serve the old man of the land, the Egyptian. When the Red Sea waters of baptism put to death that old man, and the Israelite, who is a spiritual man, came up on the other side, that was the baptism. But they went right back to serving the old man. The Lord commanded them not to ever go back that way, but they did. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 16 says, Nor cause the people to return to Egypt. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Jude 1 and 6, And the angels that kept not their own principality. So we've got a principality to keep. But left their proper habitation. There's been a whole bunch of folks that done that and fallen away. He hath kept in everlasting bonds under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Sadly, some people who are in bondage are never going to be released from that bondage. Matthew 13 and 10. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speak thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. The disciples wanted Jesus to speak plainly so that the Pharisees could be delivered from bondage, but he said, To them it is not given. And they were left in their bondage. Jude chapter 1 verse 7 says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, having in like manner, with these, given themselves over to fornication and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an, an example, suffering the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these also in their dreamings defiled the flesh and set at naught dominion. And if you'll notice that all through the scriptures, these people, these same people we've got today, set at naught dominion. Then it goes on and says, and rail at dignity. Verse 9, but Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. <clears throat> Nurse not bring against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. But these rail at whatsoever things they know not and what they understand naturally, like the creature without reason. In these things are they destroyed. You know, people can be proud. They can even be arrogant when they think that they know something. And they may have received a spirit of religion because there are many people out there who are under spirits of religion. They even may have an anointing, an anointing from the demon spirit that rules over their religion. And of course, God can give you grace to deliver those people from religious spirits. But some of them are turned over to those spirits because they are in idolatry with a man or idolatry with religion or because they like hearing the spirits telling them what they want to hear and on and on. Jude 1.11 says, Woe unto them, for they went, went in the way of Cain and ran righteously, righteously in the error of Balaam for hire and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Well, Korah was one of those rebellions, and when he and his father rebelled against Moses, they lost. They despised dominion. They set at naught dominion. <clears throat> In verse 12, 
These are they who are hidden rocks in your love feast. Yeah, there are sons of perdition hidden among us, just like the sons of perdition was hidden among the disciples. They really didn't know that Judas was hidden among them and what he would end up doing. They didn't know he would despise dominion until he turned back to the Pharisees and Sadducees and sided with them against Jesus. That's how blind they were. Or that's how well he was hidden. Jude chapter 1 and verse 12 says, These are they who are hidden rocks in your love feasts when they feast with you. Shepherds. Folks, there's no numeric pattern in shepherds, and that word shepherd is not in the original text. Although there certainly are shepherds among these people that without fear feed themselves. Clouds without water carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit. Now, with autumn trees, the leaves are dying and they're not taking in the sun anymore. They're not taking in the doctrine of Christ anymore. They're dying in preparation for winter and they don't have any fruit. Goes on and says, twice dead, plucked up by the root. A person can't be twice dead unless they've been twice born, can they? This is a falling away of people who knew the Lord and lost him. 13. Wild waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. Well, what does the sea represent? Revelation 17 and 15 tells us, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the harlot sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The sea is the world, the wicked, the beasts. The beast came out of the sea in Daniel 7 and 3, in Revelation 13 and 1. They are like those sands on the seashore that are just swept back out to sea when the waves come in. And these are people who are coming to God. And the sands that are being dragged back out to sea are the people who are underneath the dominion of the beast. They are the people who didn't bear fruit. Jude 1 and 12 said, These are they who are hidden rocks in your love feasts. When they feast with you, shepherds that without fear feed themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn leaves without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, wild waves of the sea foaming out their own shame, wandering stars. In other words, they don't keep their principality. They don't keep that heavenly position they were in. Goes on for whom the blackness of darkness hath been reserved forever. And lo, these also, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their works of ungodliness, which they have ungodly wrought, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And they have spoken against his body, too. But in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus calls them out for it. Matthew 25 and 40 said, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Even insomuch as you did it unto one of these, my brethren, even these least you did it unto me. Those that have mistreated God's children, even the least of God's children, are going to answer for what they did. A lot of people are falling away because they have mistreated God's children. And he ain't going to permit them to stay in the body because of it. You see, you only abide in him by faith through grace. Jude chapter 1 verse 16. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their lusts, and their mouth speaks great swelling words, showing respect of persons for the sake of advantage. Verse 17. But ye, beloved, 
Remember ye the words which have been spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they said to you, In the last time there shall be mockers walking after their own ungodly lust. These are they who make separations. Yeah, they separate people from other people. They separate themselves from the righteous. God makes separations too. He takes out the leaven so that his truly righteous saints are not polluted by these people. Jude 1 and 19. These are they who make separation sensual, having not the Spirit. I've seen so many people who are not filled with the Holy Spirit fall away. And they might have even struggled to receive the Holy Spirit, but they hadn't received it. Therefore, don't have the power and discernment which is really needed in the trials of this life. Well, the Bible clearly tells us who can receive, doesn't it? Acts 5 and 32, the Holy Spirit whom God hath given to them that obey him. So the problem is that a lot of these people are rebellious and they have not obeyed the Lord. Jude 1 and 20 says, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your, your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. And then Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And then 1 Corinthians 14 and 6. But now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophesying or of teaching? Verse 13, Wherefore let him that speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Then verse 18, I thank God I speak with tongues more than you all. Howbeit in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that I might instruct others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So you can pray with your understanding and you can pray with your spirit also. Paul did both. Of course, we pray in the spirit because we don't know the things that we need to pray for, but the spirit does. The spirit who sees and knows all things, including the future, it's better to depend upon him and let him pray through you according to the will of God. Jude 1.20 said, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And that's good if you don't want to fall away. Well, folks, I'm out of time. God bless you. We'll see you again next time. God willing. I love you, and we'll see you. For information, materials, and to contribute, go to unleavenedbreadministries.org. Contributions only may be addressed to David Eels, Post Office Box 231616, Montgomery, Alabama, 36123. Can quench my thirsting soul. Purest water made me whole. Let your streams of mercy flow, oh Jesus, I trust in you.
Your mercy stands and your word. 